I don't remember exactly how we came in touch. Well, we were like, who is this random person making a bunch of money on our platform? Because <laughs> again, we have someone on our team always going through the list and seeing who's making money and you know having relationships with, with people. Anka, I saw a TechCrunch article yeah. that yeah. you sold Teachable for 250 million. Yeah. So what was that feeling like the moment that you closed that deal? And I'm proud to have invested in Anka's new company, Ocho. They invited me to speak at their summit, which is all about personal finance for business owners. And I'll be speaking about a tax-free company and personal income setup in Dubai. So there's a link in the description box to sign up to that 100% free. It was a really interesting time in the world because we ended up signing the deal during what was the biggest stock market crash in history. This was right when COVID was looking like it was going to be a thing, mm. but it wasn't entirely sure. So we signed the deal on a Thursday. And then we announced the deal on the following Tuesday. And that was the same Tuesday that like, you know, the NBA shut down, we had to shut down our office. So at some level, it was kind of wild because you work to this milestone. Right. Then you're like trapped in your apartment by yourself because it's COVID and the world is shut down. So it's very interesting how both things happened at the same time. But it was, I think the biggest feeling at the time was probably one of relief because it was a six month long process to get to the point of almost closing the deal. So I was very glad to get to the finish line. So we first connected when I was probably 18, 19 yeah. years old. Yeah. And so I don't remember exactly how we came in touch. I believe Jess reached out to me or I reached out to her. Oh, we were like, who is this random person making a bunch of money on our platform? <laughs> and I think that's Jess probably, because again, we have someone on our team always going through the list and seeing who's making money and you know having relationships with, with people, so. Right, okay, well, that's good to know. Yeah. And uh, so I remember we did like webinars and stuff together, but what's interesting is now you are shifting into supporting founders, entrepreneurs, business owners with yep. personal finance, yep. right? Because yep. I agree, I mean, it's something that yep. no one really Really yep. about. And I didn't even pay myself a yep. salary yep. until a few months I, ago. Wow, it's crazy. But yeah, I mean, it's it's the sort of thing that when you're working on your business, it's so all consuming. You're spending all your time on your business that you're not thinking about your own finances. It's true. And the way we thought about it is like, I knew nothing about money till getting close to selling the company. Mm -hmm. That's when I could afford to hire lawyers and consultants and all these like people to help me figure it out. And you soon realize that the rules are kind of ridiculous, especially in America. There's so much nuance in what you can do so but the much. average business owner has no idea about it mm. so our vision is can we make the knowledge available to people but also build specialized tools to help them actually do smart things with their money okay that's great now i want to go towards that in a minute with regards to some of the things that business owners can start doing right away yep. to actually set themselves up for that long-term yep. success but let's backtrack a little bit because in order to have such a huge exit i mean mm -hmm. that's something which people dream of for their whole lives and yep. work towards but never actually yep. achieve and how old were you when this will happen it was really i guess the, the american dream i moved to america when i was 17 years old for college. I decided I couldn't be in corporate America when I was 18, when I had an internship at Amazon. And I was like, this is actually pretty awful. Uh -huh. I started Teachable when I started messing around with it when I was 23 and started it when I was 24 okay. and sold the company at 30. 30. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So in a very short period of time, you obviously got the business to that level. Yep. So let's Actually, Actually I, I lied. I just turned 31. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, that's, yeah. that's yeah. Same thing. still pretty yeah. good. Still yeah. pretty good. Not going to quite make yeah. the 30 under yeah. 30 list, yeah. though. You yeah. know, dang. Yeah, well, I did. I did actually. Okay, you did. I did yeah. Even before hitting that yeah. big yeah. stuff. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. So the mechanics behind that are very, very fast. I'm very skeptical of all these lists. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff. But, I'm with you. Yeah. Okay, so did you start the company with the mindset to exit? Or like, what were you thinking when you first began? So I'm a big believer in this quote that 
that like run your business like you're going to own it forever. Right. Otherwise, you might just have to. So at no point was I building the company to sell. Yeah. And at no point were we actually even looking for an exit. It just came in inbound. And at the time, I was sort of, you know, a little bit burnt out. And also the people who approached us were just really good people. Hotmart, I mean, they're just great people. It made a lot of sense to partner with them. The founders led the company, so it made sense. But at no point was I looking to sell. Okay, interesting. And so let's talk about that then. What are the elements to a business Mm -hmm. that makes it so exitable? Mm -hmm. So I think the thing that really helped us a lot is one, the majority of our revenue was recurring. Mm -hmm. So it was very reliable. But about half our revenue came from our creators paying us a subscription fee. The other half came from a little bit we made on the payment side. That was growing faster than the subscription side. We basically stole Shopify's playbook. That's exactly how their business is run. So the recurring nature made it pretty attractive. And we were, if I remember correctly, making 20 million a year when we started negotiating the deal and about 25 million by the time we closed the deal because there's a six month sort of lag in that period. Right, so that was a big, big multiple that you got there. Just had next thing to spare. The funny thing is COVID happened right after. So we went from 25 to 50 in literally less than six months after that. Because it always interests me, right? Because yep. there are so many different ways that people have their exit. Yep. So I remember I was speaking actually to the person that I recently started working with as, as a business yep. coach and I was going through would I ever want to sell my business, yep. et cetera. And he was like, Lauren, it is so unlikely yeah. that you're just going to one day get an all yeah. cash injection yeah. in the sale of your business. Yep. So, Because I think I remember speaking to you at one point and you were actually, you had a job within the company, right? Yeah. After selling, I was basically the CEO of Teachable reporting to the global CEO. For us, it wasn't like an instant offer. I mean, it was set up by a private equity firm. was like, hey, there's this really interesting company in Brazil making blah, blah, blah money. And I'm like, no way anyone is making the money. That doesn't sound real to me. And they're like, oh, do you want to meet them? And I was like, well, if this company is doing the same thing we're doing and doing that well, of course, I'd love to meet them. So it was set up almost like this blind date by this private equity (laughs) fund being like, why don't you guys get dinner? See if you like each other. (laughs) And we met up once and they came back to New York, met up a second time. And after meeting two, three times, they're like, okay, look, we're going to put together an offer. And I was like, the first offer they put together was terrible. And I'm like, this is roughly where it needs to be. And they're like, okay. And yeah, we kind of went from there. Right. Interesting. So how did you know that you could trust them actually? I'm a trusting person. I just, I, in my life, always reverted to trusting people by default. And I think there have been a few occasions where it's backfired, but it's worked out more times than not. So I think the cost of not trusting people in my mind is greater Mm -hmm. because you lose out on so much. So that's really true because I was having a conversation the other day with a friend and he just truly believes in humanity yeah. and he just believes yeah. in people. Yeah. And so I'm naturally the opposite. Yeah. I'm pretty skeptical because I've been burnt so yeah. many times. People take advantage, yeah. et cetera. And so it's interesting to hear you say that because I suppose if you didn't have that mindset that this opportunity never Yeah, to be honest, I mean, and this gets kind of deep for a second. I really think these attitudes are somewhat formed when we're younger. And I think I feel very fortunate that growing up, the world was a friendly place to me and I things kind of worked out. And that sort of just, again, made me believe in, in the good of people or whatever. And it's that's why I have that attitude. A lot of people that don't, not saying that's, that's the case for you, it's just where they came from, right? If you're burnt a lot when you're younger, you will decide, you will turn out that way. So 100%. Yeah, yeah no, it's true. Yeah. Like, because my, my younger brother, he's actually disabled, right? And yeah. so for me, I always saw the world as a really scary, dangerous yeah. place. Yeah. And so I think it's for sure one of those things mm-hmm. that you, it's a self-protection mechanism yep, yep, right absolutely and then you trust a few people and it turns out because you've been so untrusting for so long yeah. you trust the wrong people yep, yep. etc it, it, it reinforces the wrong behavior yeah exactly yeah. so for me it kind of worked out and i had no reason to not trust them 
but also at every given point until the deal closed, I told our, firstly, I didn't tell most of the team until the very, very end. Like it was on a need to know basis. Mm. And even amongst me and my CFO, I was like, we both were prepared for the deal to not close till the literal day we got cash in the bank. Until we got cash in the bank and the biggest mistake people make when selling their company is they think the deal is done before it's done. The deal's never done until you get your, the cash in the bank. Yeah. So Not a sale till the money's in the yep, bank, yep. right? So we were operating it with the idea that, hey, this can fall apart at any point. And so if it had fallen apart, do you think you would have just kept going or would you have started to look? That's a challenge, right? That's a danger. I today can tell you, sit here and say, I would have just kept going, but some switch would have probably been turned in my mind, right? Because you visualize yourself like with an exit and then it's hard to kind of put the genie back in the bottle. So today, yeah, I think... I would have probably gone back to work, but I would have been more open the next time anyone came came along. Okay, this is cool. And just a reminder, there's a link in the description box to a free online summit about personal finance for business owners. So if you click the link in the description box below, you can sign up. It's 100% free and I'll be speaking about a tax-free business setup over in Dubai. You, of course, know the creator platform yep. and, and creators yep. and business yeah. really really well right and so that's the majority of my audience yep. they're more so than selling low ticket courses yeah. they mainly doing like coaching programs yep. consulting so have you seen any of these businesses successfully exit perhaps people that are on the teachable platform i have but it's very very different yeah. one because very often like the challenge that happens when people buy these businesses is they're very worried the creator will lose interest and it's, it's- and the creator is the personality, right? Like without the creator's personality, it kind of takes away a lot of stuff. Yeah. And as a result, the multiples tend to be lower, but I've definitely seen these deals happen. It's just harder to orchestrate. And it also depends on, is the creator gonna work as hard? And if so, why sell? Because you're making so much money, why, why sell at all? That's right. And yeah. I think it's, what's the saying that I've heard? Something along the lines of, you wanna sell until your business is in the position where it could be acquired? Yeah. Because then it's running so smoothly and running so well that you probably but Yeah, don't. yeah, you don't, you don't necessarily need to. <laughs> yeah. So for a lot of people, when they do sell, it's less about the money. It's because they wanna, they've achieved their financial goals and they just don't wanna do it anymore. So like, they're not trying to optimize for the best price. Yeah. They're trying to optimize for freedom. So let's talk about that. So for you, when you mm-hmm. were actually selling, I know you then got into venture capital. Yep. And then now, of course, you have another startup. Yep. So yep. I want to hear about that journey because now you've done literally every single possible angle. Yep. Right? You've yeah. done the exit, the entrepreneurship, yep. the VC, yep. all yep. of it. And I've come a full, full circle. Yeah. So, so when I sold the company, I was pretty burnt out at the time because we were close to 200 people. I felt like I wasn't doing anything every day. I was managing managers who manage managers. You're just <laughs> like all you're just in meetings all day. And it just took so long to go from like, oh, we have an idea to seeing something live. Yeah. It just everything was very slow. Okay, let me ask you about this then. So when you were on all of those meetings yep. all day, every yep. day, what was happening on those meetings? I'm intrigued. I mean, in reality, look, we had executives and I was, you know, wanted to do something and I was stressed because I wanted to make change happen, but it just became corporate, right? Like you start a startup mm-hmm. because you don't like corporate America or whatever, and then you you become the thing you like don't like. And by the way, I totally think this could be my fault because I was not the right CEO. Like it's probably mistakes I made. It's probably it's probably my own fault. Right? Yeah. Put it that way, right? But I realized I'm not a big company person, so I started getting burnt out. So by the time I sold the company, I'm like, I'm never gonna start a startup again. Like why would I do that? Let me just go travel and <laughs> chill. But when you travel. You realize pure leisure is not that interesting. So investing was a really cool thing to do because it's one of the things you can actually do while you're traveling. People do it as a full-time job. I feel like I could do that, you know, 
from a beach somewhere, you yeah, take a few yeah. calls, all of that. Yeah. So it was great for that. It gave me flexibility. And I spent two years traveling the world and going to all kinds of places. And then eventually started missing just building cool things with dope people, right? Like, but that that's kind of that's kind <laughs> of the dream. And I started started like thinking about early stage startups with like rose colored glasses. I only started remembering the good things. Of and, course. Yeah. <laughs> it's like every relationship yeah, yeah, you've yeah, ever been yeah, in. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's weird how nostalgia, right? You go from like the second and I'm like, it's actually really fun. What about all the good times we had? But no, I'm doing it again and now it's again really fun. I mean, the early stage is actually great. You know, when you're just eight, 10, 20 people in an office, it's super fun. Yeah. Okay. So have you always been in a physical location? Always until we sold the company. Mm. Then we had to go into remote work. And after selling, it was remote because, again, you're 200 people. People don't want to come back to the office. True. So. so how do you find the difference between in person and in an office? Uh, in an office I hate office. video calls. I just really? hate video calls. It makes me feel like my soul is like dying. Mm-hmm. I, the only thing I hate more than like video calls for work are like video social events, like Zoom happy hours and stuff. Like it was. It's... I've never seen this. Our company tried to do this. We're like, hey, you know, let's get people together. Let's do like a cooking class as a company behind your webcam. It's just just a (laughs) form of torture, right? Like you're all like, or you're all like having a drink. You're like, cheers. I'm like, Zoom call. It's awful. Oh my gosh. Okay, Uh, so. But I love working in person. I mean, I I feed off the energy of people. I do miss travel though. Like that's the only thing I miss about working in person. So what we're trying to do or what I'm trying to do is like, you know, spend six, seven weeks in an office every single day, then take a week or two work remotely repeat that something that i've spent a lot of time thinking about because i mean you know yeah. i'm always yeah. traveling yeah. always in different yep. countries and i i would see the benefit of my team yep. having an in-person office so i've just been toying with these ideas yeah. but i'm still set on okay one of our values is freedom yep. and remote yep. work and yep. so we can lead by example and show yep. our clients that it's yep. possible to yep. do it which is yeah but see the thing is you already have a business that's working for us we have to find product market fit from scratch and i think your chances as a startup of finding product market fit are a little bit higher when you're in person because you can just move faster when you have a thing that's working it's a lot easier to be remote that's true that's fair so you had your startup when you started teachable right and then obviously now you have a startup Mm -hmm. again so what are some of the mistakes you made before that you're going to make sure that you don't make now everything everything basically Uh i mean we made a lot of stupid mistakes like just because first-time founders like we probably built too much in our product because I don't know, I was like, if it helps me get one customer, I'll add the features. As a result, our product got bloated. We had like way too many features. And eventually that sort of caught up with us. Mm. I think from a hiring perspective as well, like I think you just learn how to hire better and are better at dealing with how, what to do when things don't go well when, when hiring. Mm. I mean, I still think while building Teachable, the hardest thing always was people, like dealing with like when people don't work out or when someone is a really, really good person, but like not the right fit for the role. I just made a lot of those mistakes, you know, early on. And I still will make those mistakes. I just think you get a little better at it. But I think those are, you know, you make different mistakes, basically. But yeah, a lot of it, I think, related to people. Mm. And what, how do you decide when hiring people now, if if they're going to be a good fit for your company? So I think what we look for now is something very interesting, I think, happened in startups, I don't know, 10, 5, 10 years ago or something. I think 10 or 15 years ago, people who worked at startups 
were kind of weird people that really wanted to work at a startup. Then startups became cool. And then all sorts of people started wanting to work at startups, a lot of whom didn't actually want to work for a company that grows fast. Because when things grow fast, things can get uncomfortable, right? And now I look for people who are okay with discomfort, who are okay with the ambiguity of not knowing what's happening next, because they really value the good parts of working at a startup. So that's something I really look for. Like, for instance, if someone is equally open to working for Facebook or for us, they're probably not a good fit. Like really looking for people who want like everything that comes with working with a startup. Yeah, that's true because one of the things that I've heard many times is that the role changes so quickly. Yeah. And it's something that I've always found pretty hard to handle with my team because yeah. I'm like, yeah, but you know, we, we need yeah. to change. Yeah, and it's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah, exactly. And there are some people that find it exciting and they they're, they like not knowing what's going to happen. And those are the sort of people I want to bring on. The other tactical thing I think we messed up last time is I hired too many people. Mm. And as a result, I think this time around, I want to keep the team really, really small and potentially overcompensate people with the idea that like, hey, like you are probably going to do more than one person's work if this works you'll also get compensated much, much more in terms of being much more generous with equity than I was the first time around and stuff like that. Totally, yeah. And of course, now you've been through the whole thing, everything yeah. with lawyers yep, and private yep, equity. Yep, so you, yep. you've understood the numbers yep. now and everything, which is interesting. Yep. But I know that you're first getting started with Ocho, right? Yep. And so you messaged me and you were letting me know like, yep. hey, we're raising money yep. from loads of different investors. Yep. And I thought that was such a smart strategy because now you basically have like an access yep. to so many, people so many people to pull them in as and when needed. So yep. like, can you tell me more about that? Because yep. you obviously didn't need to raise money yep. now. Absolutely. So yeah, walk us through so, the strategy. So the first round of funding were really like, you know, I have a venture fund. I could have done the entire funding myself. So Definitely. we put two and a half million dollars of our own money. But then there's a lot of benefits we got the first time around from having investors that were just helpful mm. and part of the strategy this time is what if we not for the money but created this like army of like cool people i respect that would be stakeholders in you know this company and our success so yeah we capped it at a maximum investment of ten thousand dollars but i think have, the message yeah, like come on <laughs> yeah, yeah like maximum investment ten thousand dollars but we have now a couple hundred people that are just dope and you know super helpful and i think it's a it's, yeah, I almost think about it as like an army of evangelizers where we have people now that are vested in seeing us do well. Plus, I remember even last time, one of the best feelings after selling the company was calling all of my investors and being like, hey, guess what? I have some news for you. You know, like the the $50,000 you invested is now worth over a million dollars. They're just like, what? And, you know, so that, that was also really, really fun. And I think now being able to do that to more people would be, would be great. Yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about this then. So when you started this company, I believe you started... I, I think I heard this on another yeah. podcast episode yeah. or maybe a conversation we had, but like you weren't intending to sell this business. Yep. So tell me more about that. Like what's your future vision? What difference are you really looking to make? And I'd love to hear the thought process behind the, the various different offerings that you want yep. to bring out as the time goes yep. on. So the long-term goal, this is, you know, 10 plus years in the future is we want to build a financial institution that helps people make better decisions with their money, like mm. a, an institution that people trust. And I think that's really, <laughs> I love that are like, trust. <laughs> very... we've all experienced <laughs> the last couple of years, right? I mean, for a second, to be honest, Robinhood did seem like a company that was changing how people invest, but then they kind of went another way. The closest parallel, I think, is in the 70s, Charles Schwab came into a market where there were a lot of other brokerages, but all the other brokerages sold you whatever products and made them the most commission. It was not about what was best for the customer. Schwab came in being like, you know what? We're not going to sell you anything. We believe our customers are smart and we'll let them make their own decisions. And we will not compensate salespeople based on what securities people buy. 
And at the time, there was revolutionary. It was like the first company that like, you know, put people's interests above. And in the process, they're like a $150 billion company today. Mm -hmm. So they're probably the inspiration to look up to where it's like what they changed how an entire generation thought about money yeah. and, you know, built an institution that people trust. And that's sort of what we're trying to do. That's really interesting. Re reinvented for today. That's cool because what you say just then is exactly what I see constantly in Dubai. Actually, mm -hmm. it's a big yep. problem there. Yep. I mean, you some of the banks, you can't even open a bank account if you're not going to put 250k yeah. dollars yeah. into their investment vehicle. Oil money, it's a whole different beast. That's, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's go more into this then. Because I was pretty fortunate yep. because my very first job yep. was actually in asset management. Yep. Okay, so I, I yeah, thankfully so you... learned yeah. the things that I really needed yeah. to know when it came to all the different financial instruments, etc, etc. But obviously, Obviously, most entrepreneurs, they get into business, they make some money, and yep. you actually have this money, and you hear all the time, inflation, yeah. you're going to lose all yeah. your money because it's just sat in your bank, yeah. um, lo losing value. And so then they shift half of their time yeah. to understanding investing, right? And I even made the mistake myself, though, yeah. because then I started just spending a few hours a day yep. thinking, where can I deploy my funds, yep. right? And so if I'd have spent that time on my actual business, yep, yep, I would have made way more, you yep. know, than I ever would have yeah. made 7% yeah. S&P or whatever. So tell me more about this. Like, how are you planning to ensure that these business owners in the beginning and then eventually, mm -hmm. you know, the masses are yep. able to understand what to actually do with their money? Like, yep. what's the strategy there? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's multiple sort of prongs because to get people to change behavior is hard mm. and not everyone's going to use all of them. So one is like financial products, like smart financial products. The first one we have is a retirement account for business owners. Yes which is super easy for people to set up. They get a big tax deduction up front. They can auto invest in the market, whatever they want. And this is available now, right? This is available now for anyone that's a U.S. business owner. U.S. business, okay. Then we'll have a second prong, which is education, which for some people who's who are interested in it, it's great. It's, they can like have courses and training, community and everything to learn the ins and outs themselves. Mm. The third will be some level of, I don't want to use the word services, but an, an advisory level where it's like either just do it for me or you know, have someone help me out with this. That's really cool because I think, for example, a lot of business owners, if they have a few, even 10, 20, mm -hmm. 30, a few hundred yep. grand sat around just giving it to you guys to manage for them, yep. it will take a lot of yep. stress out of there. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Though for a lot of people, we'll tell them it's not worth us managing it or anyone managing it and charging you a fee. Mm -hmm. Just put it in the market and get back to work. Yep. Like, you know, like just yep. like put it in the S&P for a lot of people. Like based, if you have a few hundred thousand, put it in the S&P, don't spend time thinking about it. Put it to work. Also, don't sit on cash, but just put it to the market. Set up an auto recurring investment and just forget about it. Totally. Yeah, that's exactly what I did yeah. actually personally myself. Yeah. But even still, you know, it's like I wish that I, there was a way for me to. And I don't know if this is something yep. you guys are planning, but let's say, okay, you have a team yep. who are buying into, let's say, small businesses, yep. right? Local businesses. And then maybe there's like a, an advisory group where they can yep. give expertise strategy yep. or something. Like, yep. what are you guys planning to do? Is it that type of thing or mainly just the market? So initially, so we're starting with just like easy stuff like stock market, bonds, like ETFs, all of that. But eventually, we think there's a lot of cool things you can do with private investments and making yeah. that accessible and available to everyone. Now, that's really cool. Yep, yeah. exactly. And again, our goal is one step at a time, but eventually, like, with retirement accounts, for instance, like a lot of people have invested in startups. And theoretically, if you make a lot of money in a single startup investment retirement account, you don't pay any taxes till you retire. So mm -hmm. over 30, 40, 50 years, that compounds like crazy, right? Like imagine a $10,000 investment makes $500,000. Instead of paying half in taxes, you now have $500,000 to invest. And you can keep multiplying that till you retire, which the differential is just massive. 
Interesting. Yeah, because I think as well with some of the startup investments, I mean, you're amazing with yeah. this. Even since yeah. like before you guys even yeah. really started, you do great investor updates. Yep. Whereas there are other investments that I've done yeah. for considerably more and I have not had anything for three Most years. Most people don't send investor updates and it blows my mind. Like how, like you have a fiduciary responsibility, yeah. right? You're taking money from people. Uh-huh. And I've found investor updates to be one of the biggest tools I have to actually raise money in the future. Like, mm. I don't know who I will raise money from in the future, but I guarantee you they're already on our investor updates. And we did this at Teachable too, where we were very good with investor updates. So as a result, when we wanted to raise money, there were a ton of people who were like, yeah, I, I already know the story. I've been following along for two years. So it's much easier to get them to invest. Interesting. So I recommend all founders actually do this, is send regular updates, also send updates to people that aren't necessarily investors today, but could be in the future. So when you actually need money, you have this like track record of two years of them getting an email from you every single month mm-hmm. and you're in a really good position. Do you also share it on social media or mainly just to Started the- to, like as Teachable got further and further along, I got more comfortable building in public because one, that's my personality and two, I think a lot of good comes from it. For Teachable, it was too drastic to be public about all our numbers. This time I am for now. I make no guarantees that we will always be, but for now we're public about it. And I think a lot of good has come to it. There's like a few thousand people now that read a public version of my investor update. So now when we have a product launch, they also help amplify it and stuff. That's cool. Okay. When you say build in public, exactly how do you define that? So what I define is anyone right now can sign up to receive a version of our investor update. On Twitter, I share a lot of our actual numbers. Like yeah. here's how much revenue we made, here's our growth rate and stuff. And yeah, just being very transparent about the journey. And just in case you didn't know, I've interviewed people like Chris Voss, Grant Cardone, Ed Milet, Dean Graziosi. So make sure you're subscribed because there's a lot of episodes coming up. Or you can go onto Impact School Podcast on any podcast provider and you can subscribe there for free as well. I feel like when you were first with Teachable, I didn't even know you. Like I never really saw you. You were very much behind the scenes, whereas now you're coming from facing with your content, right? Yeah. Make it stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've, had, I've had so many friends tell me that. They're like, I can't, really... they're like, I can't open Instagram anymore. It's not just me. Like, Instagram is an app now. Like, they're, my friends are just like, it's just people's content. It's yeah. not like vacation pictures. It's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. like, like wisdom or whatever. True. Um, but like, your content's really interesting for me. Obviously, not being someone from the US. Yep. I don't know what it is, but US politics and business and tax code has yep. always just fascinated me I, i'm yep. not gonna lie i yep. actually studied u.s yeah. politics yeah. when i was in school. what did you what did you learn oh my gosh i learned so much yeah. and it, to me it was just like a tv show right it's just crazy but a of, also a lot of drama yeah but what's also fascinating is just the way in which in the states you're able to really minimize your taxes as a business owner right yep. and so this is interesting for me because being over here I mean, the yeah. energy here yeah. is, it's just, okay, Dubai's cool, right? And it's great not, like, yep. I just love not having any paperwork yeah. to deal yeah. with. It's just so nice. Yeah. But over here, like, there are some crazy things you can do to literally pay, like, 0% yep. tax. And, yep. and through doing that, you're also creating more jobs, mm-hmm. putting more back into yep. the economy, etc. Yep. So let's say someone is a business owner yep. and they come to you. Yep. They're learning from your courses, right? Um, Sebi the other day, yeah. he's cool. I know he's made like yeah. a credit card course with you guys. And so yeah. we were geeking out yeah. about all the points yep. and everything. Yep. But like, I want to know if I was to, let's say, move my business here, move here, set up here. Let's say I had a business making like, I don't know, let's say a million in profit yep. per year, yep. easy numbers. Yep. How can I get my 
Are you allowed to talk about this? Yeah, like, I'm allowed to, I mean, I can walk through the quick hits or whatever. Yeah, for yeah, people yeah. To it'll be cool to hear, yeah. So one, I think it's important to think about the playbook is very different if you're a tech startup or not. So okay. let's say you are, and I can talk about both cases, but if you're, if you're a tech startup, you are typically a C corporation. And the yeah. advantage with that is if you're set up in the right way and hold your shares for five years, you pay no taxes on up to $10 million when you sell your company. Wow. Which is crazy. It's something called QSBS or Qualified Small Business Stock. So if you're a startup founder, you want to look into that. What elements would need to be in place to qualify as a... Honestly, basic stuff. Like one, you have to be a technology business and not a services business. So make sure you're actually structured correctly. Two, you should not be buying back shares from your employees because you do that too many times. It triggers some weird rule. Got it. Um, third one, the biggest one is a five-year holding period. Mm-hmm. But let's say you sell your company after three years. What you can actually do is immediately buy shares in another small business. Then you only have two two more years to hold on to. Wow. So, and then you can do fancy things because it's five years. Uh, so because it's a $10 million limit, it applies per taxpayer. So but, your family. Correct. So mm-hmm. your your brother, each of your parents, they all get their own $10 million limit. Mm-hmm. Or two, if you want to get really complicated, you can set up trusts. Ah. And certain types of trusts function as their own taxpayer. So you can have two different trusts and now instead of a $10 million limit, you have a $30 million limit. Cool. Okay. So for example, like, can would the trust have to be based in the US or could they also be like Isle of Man, Jersey, etc.? I've not gotten into anything offshore just because okay. even with tax stuff, I personally think you can get really crazy and we try and be like, here is the safest of the safe sort of stuff. Right, right, right. Uh, offshore is just tricky for U.S. residents and U.S. citizens. Yeah, super hard because um, yep. even setting up a bank account in different countries for U.S. is yep. really challenging. Yep. I don't know why. I think it's because the IRS is so on it. Like, Especially because Americans pay tax on global like, income. So as a result, again, we don't don't recommend anything foreign. I whatever. guess, like for example, if you're trying to open a Swiss bank, it could maybe look a little dodgy yep. that you're going over there and the Swiss yep. don't want to put themselves in risk. Yep, for yep. Exactly. So that's all for startups. Now, if you have your own business, one, as as much as it seems like the U.S. tax code is cool, if you're a foreign entrepreneur that does not have a startup, I wouldn't recommend getting U.S. taxes involved at all. Like, it's not like the, the benefits are, there are, like, it's still better to keep your business outside the purview of U.S. tax jurisdiction unless you need to. But now let's say you're an American, you know, small business owner. A bunch of different things. The big ones are, like, expenses and deductions are, yeah. are really, really big in a way that, Someone once said that like, you can almost think about what your expensive hobbies are and start a business around it because you can make it all deductible. Like, That's true. Like travel bloggers deduct all the cost of their trips and yeah. like hotels and flights and all of that. 100%. Yeah. Fashion bloggers, same with clothes. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's, that's sort of one big category. Mm-hmm. The second big category is the ability to self-fund your benefits. Okay. So for instance, like you can get the best health insurance plan. You can get the best... What we do is retirement account. Like you can put aside, you know, sixty-six thousand dollars a year as a tax deduction into your own retirement account, wow. and then invest that in anything and pay no taxes when it compounds. Interesting. Is there capital gains on that? No, this comes out of the top line. You can put a sixty-six thousand dollars every year into it. That's really cool because in the UK they have this thing called an ISA, mm-hmm. and oh man, when I was there, I think the maximum allowed was like twenty-five thousand pounds or twenty. I forget how much it was now, but even when I was like eighteen, I was maxing that yeah. out every yeah. year. No, it's yeah. it's basically. I won't say free money, but it's one of the biggest gifts the tax code gives you. Hmm. And the benefit of having it being your own business is you can control investments. Because if you have a job, it's your corporate 401k. There's like some, you know, boomer funds they invest in. There's not nothing you can really do. <laughs> but with your own 401k, it's your money. You can 
I'm not recommending this, but if you want to, you can put it all in crypto, you can put it all in real estate, right. you can do whatever you want. Okay, so it's just like a Stokes and Share ISA in the UK, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just what it's called yep. there, but it's the the number is like three times more. Yep, exactly. And that's cool. And you get a yeah, tax deduction for it. So being able to yeah, sell fund your benefits is is massive. Cool. So um, that's what they can do on Ocho. Yep, exactly. So What's the website? Up- Ocho.com. Ocho.com. So, yeah, it's a great domain name. Did you have to pay a lot for that? Uh, forty forty thousand dollars. That's not bad. Yeah, it was. Wow. I thought it was a. I thought it was a really good price. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Dang, that's really cool. I guess the third big category, and I won't go into a lot of detail here, is, but you can do a lot with real estate. Like basically, this is so complex. Yeah, <laughs> to me as a foreigner. Yeah. yeah, but the American tax code. Basically, the American tax code is written to the benefit of two categories of people: business owners and real estate owners. Mm-hmm. There's just so much you can do, but with real estate, basically, you can buy real estate there's something called real estate for commercial purposes and there's something called depreciation which basically means when you buy it you can depreciate a big percentage of your purchase price up front which produces a loss that you can use to offset other gains so let's say you have you know three hundred thousand dollars in gains you can get a three hundred thousand dollar depreciation loss pay no taxes because you've net out to zero dollars and and then you have this real estate asset that keeps growing. Interesting, yeah. So I have no idea. I, I don't think it's even like that in the UK. If anyone knows yeah. who's watching this, yeah. it's like that in the UK, I would love to know. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't I haven't yeah. honestly seen about that there. Also with the States, isn't it like you can have a property, sell it and then roll it into You can the keep rolling it. It's called a 1031 exchange where you can sell a commercial property and you have, I think it's 60 days and you check how many days to put it into another property and keep mm. deferring tax. You keep getting nicer and bigger and bigger so properties. Cool. There's also a lot of like very quick win type things. Like for whatever reason, if you own a business, you can rent your your business can pay you f- to use your own house for like a meeting or an offsite or whatever. And as long as it's for 14 days a year, there's no taxes on that. <laughs> so you can, your business can pay you. Yeah, the whole thing. There's a lot of stuff. you can do. Yeah, really cool. And there's, a, the, I mean, everyone should go check out the, yep. the, you guys have a blog on there. Yep, and, yep. And we have Ocho Money, which is our education product that goes into yeah, courses and all of that. For sure, check that out. I mean, for me, even it's just fascinating. I don't know why, I just, this stuff is very yeah. interesting to me. Maybe I'm just a bit of a yeah. weird nerd yeah. like that, but your content's cool as well. Like what inspired the drive behind you actually getting out there on social now? So I think a few things. One, we decided we're not going to spend any money on marketing oh, okay. for a while, just because a lot of fintech products are in this loop of spending, in my opinion, way too much to acquire customers. Yes. So crazy. we're like, let's not spend any money on marketing. Second thing is, I believe ultimately people connect more with individuals than brands. So my mandate, not just to me, but to like, you know, Jess and other people on our team is like, go out and develop your personal social because mm. people connect with people. Yeah. And you know, and as a result, if I'm telling the rest of the team to do it, I'm like, I got to do it. I got to do it as well. That's true. So, yeah, again, it's all part of experimentation, really, at the end of the day, where we're always trying different things. And this is one of them. Interesting. So like in Teachable's early days, were you spending a lot on paid? Teachable, we spent a lot on paid, I would say, not in the early days, but eventually. And to the very end, we were always unsure of whether this even works, because you get to a point where you're spending a bunch of money. You're scared to turn it off because ads are very good at taking attribution for stuff right like it's like that's true <laughs> like you like you'll be spending a bunch of money and google will say this is the roi but a lot of it is people searching for teachable right so, yes i had to be really careful yeah. because i just brought on a couple of media buyers and like the way that i was going to pay them yeah. in the beginning was going to be based upon attribution yeah. to ads and, and then i saw the numbers and i was like yeah everything they're going to defend their they're going to defend their their reason 100%. of existence right yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah and attribution is notoriously hard. So we're like, let's start by spending nothing on, mm. let's try and just do sort of organic and at least 
Twitter as a channel has been very good for us. I would say roughly three out of every four of our early customers all came from Twitter. Mm. A lot of our early team members were also sourced through Twitter. Really? Yeah. Wow. Twitter's really so undervalued, I yeah. believe. Yeah. I really believe like Instagram is way overvalued. Yeah. And, and TikTok as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't even, it won't open yeah. on my phone. I don't know. It's super weird. Yeah. But um, yeah, t- Twitter's cool. And like, I did want to ask you this as well, because, you know, you've had so much success at such a young age. And so I know you walk a lot outside. Yeah. But like, what are some other things that you do to keep yourself grounded and just to like stay sane? Yeah. I mean, well, we'll see. Friends think I'm grounded. Uh, but what do I, I, I mean, I love to travel. Travel is something yeah. that's become such an integral part of my life. Too where sweet. Yeah, I love the idea of like, not just travel, like I also now sometimes travel solo. Like I usually travel with friends, but I challenge myself sometimes to like yeah, travel solo, great. which is really fun. Imagine. And very often it'll be very spontaneous. Like I'll like book a flight the same day and go to a random country or like go to a surf camp somewhere and just That's like cool. chill and live a very different life. So I enjoy that. Uh, being outdoors, nature is like, like grounds me. Like mm. whether it's like, yeah, like hiking, surfing, like just outdoor activities mm-hmm. are, are great. I get super competitive into sports. Like I joined really? a, joined a tennis league know. last summer and okay. like started playing three hours a day because I wanted to like <laughs> win every game. And you know, uh, even at even at Teachable, people didn't like to play ping pong with me because I would get way too competitive. Really? Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. that's pretty like yeah. pretty much a founder. Type yeah, exactly, of exactly. And the one occasional time I would like lose to a team member, I would like keep challenging them to, until I could beat them again. And just, <laughs> restored balance in, in my life you know i read a lot but yeah those are my my I guess hobbies or, okay yeah that makes sense yeah because i think like it's 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 good to know because i think sometimes people have these like crazy lists of things that they feel like they need to do every day yeah. like i i was always hearing this on social media like meditate red light sauna cold yeah plant, <laughs> no, no. i'm like oh my gosh i do not have time yeah for that, yeah right? yeah no like like my morning routine is like i do all the things you shouldn't do i look, wake up and look at my phone and nice. see notifications <laughs> and like none of the things you're supposed to do yeah so. no it's true like i uh i sometimes see when i'm in the u.s i'm yeah. also going straight to it Whereas when I was in Dubai, I would literally have like two hours with yeah. nothing, but that's because no one else is awake, yeah, right? Yeah, so it's yeah, kind of, it also depends where you are in the world. Yep. And like, how do you find it being when you're traveling, working mm-hmm. versus here? Like, So if, I think when I'm here, I'm very good at getting day-to-day stuff done. Like I'm in the office, I can like knock off lists, like things I need to do real fast, great for collaboration. But all of my best ideas and thinking and strategy work happens when I change my location. Mm. So for instance, like, in general, I can't think. This sounds really dumb. When I'm seated, I have to be in motion. I like, am for, the same. Yeah, and it drives people crazy yeah. because, like, sometimes I'll be somewhere like Buenos Aires, yeah. right? And like, I'll get on a call with. So I'll be like, yeah. I'll message Nora, and I'll be like, yeah. No, oh my gosh, yeah. I had a great idea. Let's get yeah. on a call. And it's like beep beep yeah. beep because yeah. the service is so yeah. bad. So yeah, I just gave up on taking yeah. calls. Well. Yeah. So yeah. So for me, it, it was like yeah. So travel work is different type of work. I mean, of course, I'll do a lot of the day to day stuff, but that's when I, it helps me. In general, I'm a big believer of like changing your location can change your routine almost instantly. You can at any point go to a new place. Like, let's say you want to become a morning person. My tip would be like, go to a new place and like just try becoming a morning person there. Yeah, yeah. Go to like LA where the time zone is really difficult and you have to wake up early. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just go go do something like that. So for me, travel work is great for for that. Great for thinking and just thinking bigger picture, like zooming out on the day-to-day. Okay, cool. And so the last thing I want to ask you is when you sold Teachable, mm-hmm. right? And you had a big injection of cash. Now you have this new yeah. wealth platform and you're all about personal finance. Like, what did you do with the money? 
Yep. So what I did, which is by the way, but I still do, I haven't changed it yet. And it also made me realize how like suboptimal or not good I was then. And frankly, like everything we talk about, by the way, is like an idealized thing. Like no one's going to do all of it and no yeah. one should feel guilty about doing all of it. Seriously. But what I did was I divided about my money to two halves. Half of it is just like indexing the market. And this is through, you know, private wealth and Goldman and I overpay them and it's probably not good and all of that. And that's roughly indexing the market. I mean, you know, like 80% S&P, 20% like international and small cap, whatever. It's just roughly going to like go up and down with the market. That's the amount of like, okay, no matter what, that's like how I think about like protecting my money. The other half, I'm like, let me go have fun with it. Let me go, <laughs> let me go try and actually be aggressive at growing that. And for me, and this is different for everyone. I wouldn't tell everyone to do this. For me, it was like, where do I have an advantage? And I think I have an advantage in early stage startups. So I put a lot of it into my own investment funds, some of it in my friends' investment funds, and some in startups directly. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's one of the smartest things I ever heard was yeah. just double down on your strengths. Yep. And it's yeah. so yeah. simple, yeah. but it's just it makes so much yeah. sense, right? Like if you have the knowledge, if you know what the numbers should yeah. look like, if you yeah. know the people who are connected to the best people, yeah. then of course that's the yeah. best place for you yeah. to personally look at. Yeah. I'm actually thankful to my dad to push me to do this. At first, I was mm. going to be much more conservative and be like 80, 90% stock market, 10% fund investments. Wow. But my dad's like, you're already at a point where no one in our family ever was or ever thought we could be. You're playing with house money. Why not just, you know, why not like aim bigger? Like none of us have ever aimed big. Why not aim bigger? Why not like, why only put 10%? Why not? Yeah, take a bigger swing at it. So that's amazing. That yeah. gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Dang, yeah. what's a wisdom yeah. from yeah. him? Yeah. I love old it. Man, old cool. man. Yeah. That's awesome. Anka, thank you so much for yeah. coming on Thanks today. For this was me. great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, ocho.com, O C H O.com. Yeah. Go learn some stuff about some money from someone who definitely knows, knows a little bit about that stuff. So yeah. thank yep. you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> One of my favorite things about interviewing people like Anchor is that it just empowers you to think bigger and it empowers you to think in a different way. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed recording it. Again, just as a reminder, I will be speaking at that summit. Grateful that they invited me to do that. Grateful to be an investor in his new company. What an incredible entrepreneur and some insane new interviews are going to be coming up real soon and i'll be posting here on this youtube channel more and more so hit the subscribe if this was valuable yeah share it with a few friends i've seen a lot of people tweeting this episode out as well lately and so you can find me at lauren tickner over on any social media platform and it'll be great to connect so thank you so much 